Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. All right, thank you music team today for leading us to this point of worship. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Luke 15 and verse 1. Luke 15, verse 1. We're going to continue today through our Christmas sermon series entitled Relentless. And the title of the sermon today is The Younger Son. We are, we're, what we're trying to do this morning is continue to be very intentional about not missing Jesus at Christmas because of all the things that are going on, all the responsibilities we have, and all of the things that can actually distract us at, Christ, at Christmas time, and we can actually miss Christ at Christmas. And I think we've done a good job this month in looking at Luke 15 and trying to be very intentional about seeing the heart of God for Christmas. And what we've seen is this. God is a seeking God. And Christmas is about that story that God seeks the lost and He seeks the lost relentlessly. And as you see this and hear this, as the Word of God is applied to your life, what you're going to do is have your heart melted and it motivates you to live for God in 2020. This is a story today that it speaks to the divine authority of Scripture. Just the sheer beauty of it. It's a, a very well-known story. If you've been in church at any point in your life, you've probably heard the story that we're about to read. It's one of my favorite stories. And uh, another story that I love at Christmas time is the story that we're often seeing the movie, uh, on TV, but it's actually a classic book called A Christmas Carol, which was written in the 1800s by a man named Charles Dickens. And, of course, it's the story of the... Ebenezer Scrooge and the, the ghosts that come to him to change his life. And that's an incredible story for a person to think up. And somebody asked Charles Dickens one time, what's the greatest story you've ever heard? And he said the greatest story that's ever been told is the story of Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son. And it's often, it's often called the story of the prodigal son, but really that's not what the story is. It's actually about three sons. And most of the time, we tend to just stop at the first younger son, but we're not going to do that. We're going to look at the younger son today and focus on him, but we're going to look at the older son next week. One thing I'd really want to encourage you to do is to invite somebody to come with you next week that's unchurched. Somebody that doesn't have a church home that's are not actively going to church. If you purchased a, a, a T-shirt, you can pick those up today, and you need to use those as sort of an advertisement wherever you go and give people an opportunity to know that Ridgecrest is the place that you call home. And there's, there's people everywhere I go, there's people that I run into that are not going to church anywhere, and there's no better time to invite somebody to come than actually at Christmas and Easter. So please use the opportunity next week to invite somebody and bring somebody with you. Let me remind you, uh, before we read this text, that the story is actually one we have to understand who the audience was, and that was back in verse 1, and we looked at this for the last couple of weeks in the previous two parables, but the story is actually not being told only to sinners. It was actually being told to the Pharisees and the scribes who were the religious leaders. So literally, Jesus told the story to them, the people that were supposed to be the religious experts, the Pharisees, the scribes. So look back with me at verse 1, chapter 15, 
And then we're going to move down to verse 11 to get to the story of the prodigal son in just a moment. Verse 1, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So Jesus told them this parable. Verse 11, and Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. I think it's people that have been in church. We're appreciative of this story, but oftentimes we're not as moved by it as we really should be. And what's amazing to me is to give this story to somebody who's never heard it for the very first time. I had the, we had the privilege of doing this story in storytelling when we were in the Becca village in Guinea, Africa on a mission trip. And we were witnessing to, um, people there that are sort of Muslims and they're sort of African traditional religion, but they're definitely, uh, I had never heard the gospel story, and it was an amazing thing to watch them listen, to watch their faces as they heard this story for the very first time. They would literally sit, and we're telling this story, and they don't know how it's going to turn out, and they're literally sitting on the edge of their seats, and they're literally so quiet that you could hear a pin drop. And they're Muslims, and so Muslims have a theology that God is a God of punishment, and He's harsh. And so God in, in Muslim theology, if you do wrong, God punishes you. And if you do right, God may or may not bless you depending on how much he likes you. But what 
what they certainly would teach is God is not a God of personal love. And on top of that, there is what's called a shame and honor culture, which is exactly the same type of culture that Jesus was teaching this original story to. And we don't appreciate in our culture today what it means to be a shame and honor culture like the Bible was. So what that means is that shame and honor is the determination of right and wrong. And it's, so it's, it's fun to be there because when you're there, you feel like you're literally back in the Bible and you're actually teaching the people in the same setting that you read these stories in the Bible. And so to, to, to shame your parents, to dishonor your parents, that is the ultimate sin. That's the greatest evil in a shame and honor culture. And so when a child does this in Africa today, in West Africa, or in the days that Jesus was telling this 2,000 years ago in the Near East, to shame your parents, first of all, it was punishable by Mosaic law, by death, if the parents so choose to be dishonored in public. And, second, and, and the typical reaction in, in a shame and honor culture is to punish and to disown and disconnect that child from the community. So the child would be excommunicated from the, the household, kicked out of the family, kicked out of the household in the community. And that's the reaction that our host, Maury, who's a Muslim imam, he's a Muslim teacher. Maury's thinking, he's, we're sitting there telling this story to him, and he's thinking they're going to kick this son out of the household and kick the kid out of the, the village. And that's what would be right. And that is exactly the same way that this original audience would have received it. They would have thought this child has so, this younger son has so dishonored and shamed his family that there's, he's beyond hope and he needs to be punished. And what Jesus does here is he complete, completely flips their theology. He, sho- he shocks the world with this story. And we've kind of lost that in the American church, but it was a shocking theology because what it basically said is the father who, in the story, who represents God is saying, what Jesus is saying about God today is the father is never to be um, deemed to accept us based on what we do. And that turns... Christianity and the gospel into a completely unique world religion. I have people ask me all the time, why do you feel that, why do you feel that Christianity is any better off than any other world religion? What makes Christians so arrogant that they would say that we're better than any other world religion? And, and the primary understanding of that is that Christianity is unique. Christianity is completely different from every other world religion because what we're saying is we don't perform our way to God, but God accepts us based on who he is. And I want you to recall that Jesus was telling this parable to these people that were grumbling that Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners. They were not happy with the Son of God. And they were the experts. And so I want you in your mind, if you just would stop and just say, if I had to say the worst sins in American culture, the worst sins that a person can do are the sins of blank. And you fill in the blank. The people that are the worst sinners in American culture are the blanks. And whatever you're thinking of, that's the people Jesus was eating with. And he was teaching them the gospel. And they were listening, the Bible says, to him because they realized that Jesus loved them. 
They sense the love of God in Christ. And so the Pharisees are watching all this take place and they're grumbling about it. And they were displeased about it. And so they're saying that, Jesus, your theology is wrong. The, the, the Pharisees were saying hey, the way you get to God is by getting clean. You get cleaned up first and you get your life together, get your act together. And then you come to God and you perform. And if your performance and your human morality is good enough, God will accept you. Try hard. Try to be good. Don't be bad. And God will accept you. And that is the essential morality that the overwhelming majority of Americans have. And, and they fail to understand the difference between that idea of who God is and how we get to God and what the gospel really is. And so, again, Jesus is laying these stories out and telling who God is, who his father is in Luke 15. He told us the parable already of the lost sheep, that one lost sheep that we covered that Jesus went after. The lost coin that was so valuable, it represents the, the value of humanity, the one human life. And then you come to this parable. It's the parable of what I would call the parable of the story of three sons. And so what I want to do this morning is just look at first three. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look first at the rebellious path this younger son took. I want to look at the relentless pursuit of the loving father. And then look at what Jesus was trying to do in his revealed purpose and then at the end of the service, we're going to have a time for you to, to decide what you're going to do with Jesus today. And a time to react to what God is saying to you, because God is speaking to you right now through his word. And so we have to decide, you know, what our reaction today is going to be to the words of God. And the first thing I want to look at and just kind of really flesh out is this rebellious path, because, again, we can miss this story if we don't really understand the implications of what we're being said here the, rebe the rebellious path of the younger son begins in verse 12 where he says, Father, give me this share of my estate. And so we might think, well, that's no big deal, but it was a huge deal. What he was asking for was what he would get after the father had died. He was essentially saying, what you were going to give me when you die, go ahead and give that to me. And in that culture, the younger son would get one-third of the estate and the older son would get two-thirds of the estate. That was just their tradition. But what that really meant in real terms was the younger son was saying, you've lived long enough and you've been in my life long enough and I really want you dead because I want your stuff. And I don't want a relationship with you anymore. I don't want to obey you anymore. I don't want to be a part of your ways anymore. I want to separate completely from you. And I only want what I can gain from you, but I do not want a relationship with you any longer. I wish that you were dead. So, yeah, he was shaming his father in that culture. The household was completely shamed. Everybody in it. And what's amazing about this story is the grace the father gives him because by grace the father gave him exactly what he asked for because he was trying to maintain his relationship with his son. That's a beautiful story of who God is. He sold everything he had and put it into his two sons' names in order to maintain a relationship with his son to say, I love you. And despite 
your attitude of rebellion against me, I still love you. And despite the fact that you've rejected my love, I love you unconditionally. It's a picture of who God is. And now the estate's been divided. It's a third to the younger son and two-thirds to the older son. And what ends up happening at this point is that the younger son, the Bible says, not longer after that, he got everything together. And so what that meant is the son began now to take the estate and cash it in. And see, we miss this in our culture because when the father took his estate and divided it two-thirds, one-third, that meant selling everything he had. And the most valuable thing they had at that point was land. In that culture, and even that culture today, land is the greatest asset you can possibly own. And land is a sign of status in that culture. What what Jesus is saying to them is that land that had likely been in the family for hundreds of years, that had been passed on from son to son to son, that had been maintained as part of the heritage of the family, standing in the community, honor had now been lost. The son cashed it in. He got everything together. He took that land that had been in the family for hundreds of years and he sold it as quickly as possible to get a wad of cash. In verse 12, the Bible says the father divided his wealth. But in the original language, in the Greek, it doesn't say wealth. It says he divided his life. The word is bios, which is the word we get biology from, which means life. The father had divided his life amongst his two sons, and the younger son cashed it all in further piling more shame on the family and the father and dishonor to this family in the eyes of the community. They'd lost it all, and yet the father still loved the son. Although all of this meant rejected love, he still loved his son. And, of course, the story goes on from here that the younger son goes off to a far country. He gets as far away as possible. And he dives into a life of just blatant rebellion. Everything that was traditional, he rejected that. Everything that was the morality of the culture, he goes for the life of self-discovery into the life of sin and finding fulfillment and everything that's opposite of what his dad had stood for. And The Bible called this reckless living. And it would have involved living with prostitutes. It would have involved sexual sins. And he squandered the estate, the Bible says. And we today talk about the prodigal son. The word prodigal means spend everything. It really doesn't mean he was wayward. The word prodigal means having spent it all. Verse 14, it says, when we get that, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred and he began to be impoverished. So he gets to the point where the cash is gone. And when the cash is gone, the friends are gone. When the friends leave, the fun's gone. And this is basically Jesus, the Son of God, saying this is how sin works in our lives today. And you want to know why preachers are so opposed to sin? It's not because we don't want people to have fun. It's because we understand the course of sin. Sin promises freedom, and it eventually enslaves us. 
maybe for a little bit, there's freedom, but then eventually you're enslaved. It promises, sin promises fulfillment, but eventually it leads to emptiness. Sin promises fun, but it robs you eventually of your enjoyment. And the Bible says that he finally got to a place of being impoverished, and some translations say that he was in need. And it's, it's sad to me that it took this for him to realize his standing in life. And it's critical for people to get to a place where they say, I have a need for God. You cannot be saved if you don't have a need for a Savior. The overwhelming majority of people today say, I don't need a Savior. That's why they're not here amongst us today. And I'm, I'm brokenhearted over that. I want to see people get to a place where they have a need for a Savior without having to be at the end of the rope like this man was. I mean, he got to a place, he had to go and hire himself out. He essentially became a slave to a local citizen. He was enslaved now to his sin, and he goes into the pig pen, which for a Jew, again, this is the greatest of all uncleanness. I mean, they hated pork, they hated pigs, it was an unclean animal. And he's in the pigsty, in the mud, feeding these pigs pig slop and, and wanting to have the pig slop to eat for his own self. And his slave master boss says, you can't feed yourself that pig slop. I need you to feed it to the pigs. Do not eat it yourself. And for a Jew to hear this story, it would have rocked their world. It would have meant a lot more because what the Jew would have said was, this man is at rock bottom. He's hit the bottom of the well. Verse 17 says, finally, at rock bottom, he came to his senses. The Bible teaches us that when God is working in your life, the Holy Spirit is working in your life, he begins to open up the truth of the gospel to you. You begin to hear this message that God will receive you back if you'll come home. And this man began to understand, my father's hired men are fed food and much better off than I am. And I, he said, I, I've got to come to my senses. Hey, there may be somebody here today. Today is the day to come to your senses. And realize maybe before you hit rock bottom, because you may be out there saying, no, I'm going to keep riding this thing out and see if I can recover my life. I'm going to keep, you know, trying to work things out on my own. And the voice of God is saying to you today to come home, to come to your senses. Verse 17 says he came to his senses and he, he got up, he did something. He made a decision. He just started toward home. And God took care of everything else. He had a plan. The younger son's plan was to work it off. He said, look, I have shamed my household. There is no possible way that I should be allowed back in. You just don't know what I've done. But all I want to do is take the chance that I can get some food and survive because he was, in a, he, was, he was at the bottom. He was in survival mode. And he said, I've got to make restitution. So the plan is work it off. Verse 18 and 19, he gives the plan. In verse 18, I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. To be a hired man was not the same as to be a slave. To be a slave or to be a worker meant you could stay in the household, on the estate, in the house. He's saying, I don't even have the right to be in the household. I just need to be somewhere in the local area where I can get some money from you so that I can get some food. But I have lost the right to ever be reinstated into the household. Maybe, just maybe, if I work the rest of my life and if I'm perfect, then I'll be able to, to, to be on the edge of the household of my father. That was the very theology that the Pharisees taught those tax collectors and sinners. What the, what the Pharisees said was, if you'll give everything you got from here on out, maybe, just maybe, you'll be on the outside close enough to get a little bit of food from the Father. But there is no possible way you'll ever enter back into the household. You have forfeited that right. And they would have heard this son's theology, that younger son's theology, and that the Pharisees were thinking in their own mind, that kid's got it. He understands. He's got the right idea. Get to work. The only question is, how is severely is the father going to punish him? How much retribution is the, the shame this father has experienced going to be required to pay off? In verse 20, it says, So the younger son got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. If you'd have been in that original audience at that point right there, you would have heard a gasp. There would not have been a sound. There would have been a, a, a gasp from the Pharisees saying, that's not who God is. There's no possible way that God would actually do that. The gasp from the tax collectors and sinners would have been, is there any possible way that God would receive us like that? And yet that's what the Lord Jesus said. And he said that the younger son was seen by the father from a long distance. What did that mean? The implication was that the father had a daily routine of going to some special place, probably a place that the whole community was aware of what he was doing, further enhancing the memories and shame of the original separation of that younger son. And the father would look out across the horizon where that son had departed from and pray and call out to his son, son, come home. And it was more than likely something that the local people would have said, look at that old man who's been shamed and whose love has been rejected. And the father didn't care. That one son's love never was extinguished. It was relentless. This is the son turning home to lead to the relentless pursuit of a loving father. He saw him from a distance. And the text then tells us in the relentless pursuit, the father took off running to meet his son. That's who God is today. I'm telling you today, if you'll just make one step toward God, he'll get up and run towards you and at his own shame. That's who God is.
And I will tell you that we miss again the, 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 the embarrassment of this to an Eastern, a near Eastern patriarch of a family. Folks, to be the patriarch of a family in that, that society is the height of all honor. You don't, he doesn't come to you. You go to him. When we go into the Becca village, we don't ask the village elders to come and see us. We go to them. And why, by doing that, what we're saying is we recognize that you are in authority here and you're the person of honor in this village. And when this father saw his son, just from the sheer grace and love he had for him, he, he began to run, which would have clearly meant he picked up his robe, exposing his legs, which for a Jewish old, older man would have been the height of embarrassment. And now we have this picture of this old patriarch running across the desert with his robe held high to keep from tripping over it, crying, seeing his son. The Bible says he fell on him, kissed him over and over repeatedly. And this son begins to lay out this rehearsed speech and says, saying, Dad, let me, let me tell you, this is what I've done. And his son, he says, Son, I'm going to cut you off right there. I'm cutting you off. Let me tell you what we're going to do instead. We're going to give you a clean robe, the best robe. That was a picture of the atonement. It was a picture of the cross and the payment, the sacrifice and substitution that Jesus paid for as the third son for you at the cross. And God gave this Younger son, in the picture of the father, a ring which said, you're now officially back in that family. You're in the household. Only the family members had the family rings. He gave him sandals. Only the sons wore sandals. It was a picture of complete forgiveness and reinstatement into the household. It was a picture of grace. It was a beautiful story, and it is a beautiful story. And the point of the story is this. The revealed purpose of the Lord was to say, you are the younger son. Each of us, at some point in your life, even for believers, we embrace the attitudes of the younger son. Each of us does. And it was our need for a third son to come into our world to pay for that atonement through the cross to absorb the payment for our sin because there is a payment and justice has to be done. And it was done by God Himself through the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus. The revealed purpose is the story of Christmas. It's the story of the third son who comes down into our distant country to rescue us from our pigsties. The eternal Son coming to earth, taking on the nature of a man in order that He would be able to spend everything to rescue us. I trust that you could say there's been a time in your life where you've had this attitude, God, I want the stuff I can get from You, but I really don't want You. And I certainly... Don't want to do it your way. I want to do it my way. 
I want to do it when I want to, how I want to, and I want to decide what's right for me, and I want to find my way in life and discover my own way in life, not your way. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that Christ, who knew no sin, was made to be sin on our behalf so that we might be given the righteousness of God because we are all the younger son, and we all need a Savior. Even as a follower of Christ today, we wander away into distant countries. We take advantage of grace. We take advantage of our Father. And what God is requiring of us is just to come home today. And we told this story in the Becca village and we were watching Maury, and Maury, his eyes began to well up with tears. His eyes began to get you know, full of where you could see that he was about to cry, and one, one big tear came down his cheek. And Maury said, that is a beautiful story. Then he said this, he said, I have a son that about seven years ago left this village and he shamed me when he left. He went to Liberia, the adjacent country, and there was a civil war that broke out while he was there. Many innocent people were killed in the fighting in the civil war. I've been told more, he said, by many people that he's likely dead and I haven't heard from him in years. And he turned to our mission team and he said, will you pray in Jesus' name? that my son will come home. And so we did that. We prayed for this Muslim imam teacher, imam teacher, that his son would come home in Jesus' name. And of course, we came home on our trip. About three months later, the IMB missionary, who is supported by Lottie Moon, whose vehicle and home we were living in and staying in are all Lottie Moon provided, that, that, his name's Diedrich. Diedrich got a call on cell phone from Maury. They speak to each other in French. And Maury said, Diedrich, you'll never believe what happened. I just got a phone call from my son, and he's alive. And my son asked me, Father, can I come home? I know that I've shamed you, but I'd like to come and live back in your household. And Maury said, son, I want you to come home. I want you to be in my household again. I love you. I accept you. I forgive you. And his son came home. And he's there in that village today. When Diedrich heard that story, the missionary Diedrich, Diedrich said to Maury, he said, Maury, the kingdom of God has come near you today. Don't miss it. And that's what I'm telling you right now. The kingdom of God is here today. Do not miss it. I'm going to ask you to bow in prayer with me. There's a decision that each one of us needs to make today. Because each of us is the younger son. At some point, even this week, even the Christians in here, at some point this week, you said, I want to do it my way. I want to go my way rather than submit to the Holy Spirit. And that, my friend, is sin. 
that requires forgiveness. And you've, if you've been born again, if you're a follower of Christ, this story should melt your heart and cause you today to say in 2020, God, I want to live like I've never lived for you. And so today, if you're a follower of Christ, your, your prayer today should be, God, I see the relentless pursuit that you've had toward me in life. I don't want to take advantage of grace that's been provided at the immense, infinite expense of your son on the cross. I see the love of a seeking father and I see the love of a third son, the Lord Jesus, and I want to recommit my life. And that means faithfulness to the church. That means faithfulness and obedience. That means getting serious about being a follower of Christ. It's not cheap grace. It's costly grace to be a follower of Christ. And so today, if you've wondered out there, it's time to come home. And if you are a Christian, you, you may still want to say today, God, I need to recommit my life to Christ. But I want to I want to speak to anyone here today that at no point in the back of your life, in the background of your life, have you ever bowed to Jesus as your Lord and been born again. The Bible says in the book of John, chapter one, verse twelve, but as many as received Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in the name of Jesus. To believe means to place all of your trust in Him for salvation. And you can do that right now. I'm going to pray a prayer, and you in your heart can pray a silent prayer and be saved today. Pray something like this. Dear Lord Jesus, I am the younger son. And I'm the younger son who has rebelled and gone off into a distant country, and today I'm coming home. Today, receive me into your household in the name of Jesus. I make Jesus my Lord. I receive forgiveness of my sins in Jesus' name as He is my Savior who went to the cross to pay for my sins. Forgive me. God for my sins and save me today in the name of Jesus. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com. Have a great day and God bless.